Hello and welcome to the Daily Lawyer podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today is yet another episode in our careers in the law series and today we are going to be speaking about having a career in the law not just as a counsel or as an advocate which we have done in the past but as someone who can do both and also um also run found and run a legal journal uh while he was a student right we have an amazing guest with us today we're going to be speaking about all of this and much more also about aviation law it's a topic that i don't know much about so i'm interested in knowing uh, about all this from our guest today who is advocate vikrant pachnanda vikrant thank you so much for joining us today vikrant, thank you Anna. thank you for having me today vikrant is uh, he graduated from gnlu in 2011 and then uh, did his masters in law from cornell university of the law in 2013 while at gnlu he founded not one but two law magazines one was of course the peer reviewed law magazine uh, which is india law journal and the other one which i think you helped found was the gnlu uh, journal of law yes. and uh, do, politics do, 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 correct yeah and i don't know how you did it while being a lawyer so you uh, while being a law student You definitely had that entrepreneurial zest in you, way from from the beginning. Uh, he is uh, practice. He is now a Supreme Court uh, counsel and an AOR and practices extensively in the areas of dispute resolution uh, and also in the area of aviation law. So Vikrant, you are going to tell me all that you do, especially in the area of aviation law. But uh, before we get into that, can you tell us how you started? Like, how did you think of becoming a lawyer? and the journey from a law student to today well uh, i actually became a lawyer by uh, default uh, wanted to always become a pilot aviation was always my passion but uh, i also had a, a air sickness problem so because of which i knew i could not become a pilot and at that point of time you know no one had really heard of uh, aviation law and uh, now it's still um, uh, now it's uh, of course developing in india but at that point of time nobody including myself had heard of it and uh, so therefore i knew i couldn't become a pilot and uh, i was thinking of what else could i do in the aviation space and i actually couldn't think of anything to be very honest i was very fond of debating and uh, quizzing and 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 speak and and public speaking doing extempore speaking and that's when you know i uh, decided to to pick up uh, the books and and prepare for my law entrance exams and uh, become a lawyer uh, which is why you know i probably had the interest of getting into litigation from the very beginning because of that zeal to uh, uh, you know uh, argue uh, and speak uh, on a forum that allows me to do so so that is how i kind of um, Uh, that's how you know i got the idea and i decided to do law and nothing really else really interested me be it science be it math be it management so by default uh, you know i zeroed in on law uh went into law school in 2006 and uh, while i was there i authored an article which i sent to a law journal and while they liked it you know they didn't they didn't, they said we couldn't publish it because they couldn't publish it because they wanted me to Uh, either be a lawyer or, or you know write alongside an author write alongside a lawyer so while i did find a lawyer to co-author the article with however i felt it was necessary to have a forum where students could write alongside legal luminaries uh, and they not there be not just an exclusive platform just for these uh, luminaries so that is what kind of came into my mind and and that kind of uh, got me to launch uh, india law journal in 2008 how did how did you uh, how was the process because i know i think we connected because of an article that i wrote which got published right. in india, india law journal but right. then i remember looking at the editorial board that you had put together at the time and this was in 2010 so it was just a couple of years since you had started and you right. done you, it was only an online magazine is it still only an online Uh, no, so the so the thing was, it was actually uh, both online and print till COVID. Um, the idea of a online journal was there because when we were planning the journal, uh, you know, I met a lot of lawyers 
uh, and uh, since they, are, they were going to contribute to the art uh, journal as well, and they suggested to me that, you know, um, why don't, uh, you know, you go for an online thing, it's something new. At that point of time, there was no Legally India, there was no Bar and Bench, and uh, that was, uh, and you know, they, they, you know, they told me the difficulties of having a print copy, uh, you know, it goes and it will just be lying in the reception and probably partners won't get to see it. Also, by the time some issue comes, by the time it's actually printed, the relevance sometimes tends to go. So, and it was going to be a first of its kind uh, or probably one of the first of its kind. So I said, yeah, I mean, that sounds kind of good. But at the same time, you know, having a hard copy also had its own charm, especially if you were an author, uh, because I put myself in an author's shoes as well. And I realized that, you know, when I have written an article, if I have the hard copy to show, that definitely has a better uh, has has a better feel to it than just having a printout from an online. But yes, in terms of running it, uh, the online version definitely looked uh, more sustainable than a physical copy. And that's when we decided that you know we will print physical copies, but we will print them only for the people who write for us and give them a copy each. So while we are online, while we're easy to access. And we can disseminate information as and when it actually does come. At the same time, every author gets a hard copy as well. So tomorrow, if after 10 years, they would show uh, to somebody, you know, we've written an article, they, they have a hard copy to fall back upon. So that is the model we decided to adopt. In the last two years, because of COVID, we've not uh, printed physical copies. Uh, but uh, we've also now realized in the last two years, even though we didn't get to print physical copies, we've also seen that authors haven't demanded physical copies, maybe because COVID has made everything so electronic and so seamless that uh, that urge to have a physical copy seems to have gone. And now we are actually thinking of, you know, whether we need to actually uh, post COVID era continue with this hard copy or not, uh, because now, um, you know, it's everybody is sharing things online, including people who've written articles and things like that, because everything is now uploading, so even if I, they were to have a, soft, a hard copy, they would still have to scan it and they would prefer having a, a soft copy of it. So we kind of, uh, while that's not a decision we've taken yet, but uh, that's the change I've seen in the last uh, more than a decade in terms of acceptance to online, that today even authors actually don't miss having a, a physical uh, copy. That's true. But how did you get, get such a board together as a student, like how did you get, you know, so I, so I kind of, uh, uh, I had the thing of networking from day one. So I did attend a conference when I was in, uh, uh, in one of my internships. And that's when I got a feeler of uh, these networking conferences that happen in, in five star hotels. And I kind of kept in touch with uh, a handful of people there who were kind enough to give me introductions, uh, even places where I interned. Uh, they were happy to come on board as well as again give me introductions. So I kind of set it up uh, using that as a base. And uh, then, of course, you know, over the years, as one got into the profession, you kind of started, you know, you developed your own contacts. And plus, you started dealing with a lot of these councils on a regular basis from a professional perspective. So now, of course, it's very easy to, uh, you know, if I want. Uh, to get somebody on board and especially if I have worked with him or even if I've not worked with him to get an introduction because I would probably know five people who know him. Yeah. You know, I, I really want to dig a little bit about this networking thing because it's something that most of us don't do. I know I don't do it at all. Uh, and I don't, I don't think we know how to do it. Forget, you know, doing it or not. We actually don't even know how to network. But I think it's, it's a phenomenally important skill for anyone, any profession, but most certainly in our profession. Uh, how how on earth did you start like you started so early and I know that you're really good in at keeping in touch because you have kept in touch over the years with me I have barely kept in touch with you um, so how do you do it like if for, for a person who or for a young lawyer or even anyone who's listening what how if you want to tell them or give them tips on how to network or how to start what would you say well I think it's really important to start networking from day one at law school uh, it's something which has to come into somebody naturally. And while everybody, I'm not saying I have it naturally, but uh, uh, some people get it naturally, some don't. And for people who don't, it's, uh, you know, if they start in law school, probably by the time they graduate, it would come to them naturally. It's like mooting. Uh, you know, some people, it doesn't come 
speaking publicly doesn't come to them naturally but moving kind of acts like a simulation to uh, help them overcome that that uh, that uh, that problem or fear or whatever they have of speaking publicly so i think networking is important from day one um, and it's it's it, it, while you know when we were in law school people would you know you would hear people say oh he got this internship because of a contact or he got this because of that but the the end result at the end of the day in fact a lot of people used to ask me once the journal was going and i was in maybe it was 3 4 years old that you know can you help us you've got people on the board and i remember you were also once kind enough to assist me with an internship i think at one of the firms you were in i think paris kohad or if i'm not wrong so i think uh, and 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 then you know i would tell people i mean you asked me for a favor i'll be very happy to assist you uh because i'm also sometimes in the same boat and i also ask people so if i can help you definitely yes but then at the end of the day you have to realize you asking me is also like using a contact so you have to get that thing over your head and say oh you have a contact you also got your internship because you requested me and i was your contact in that case so it's important to kind of get that out of your head because the reality is that this profession works through networking and the sooner or later you realize this the better because you don't realize it in law school you will see that people you know sometimes you might find who don't have a cv as impressive as you might have got a better opportunity i'm not saying they'll go ahead but sometimes it does and networking does play a role in that and whether you accept the fact or not i mean it is a sad truth that marks are not everything so if somebody feels that you know i'm the topper but i don't have and therefore i don't need to do this then he's definitely mistaken because a person who's average but good at networking might end up doing better than him and uh, if you don't realize this now you will realize this once you get into practice because once you are in practice again it is networking how else do you get clients uh, and uh, if if uh, and that is not just the case of independent practice even if you're working in a law firm uh, you will as you keep uh, becoming climbing up the ladder and you reach partner level uh, I, i keep having discussions with friends and colleagues and uh, batchmates of mine who are today partners at various uh, law schools and and uh, therefore uh, it's uh, you you realize that you know at some point of time they'll expect you to bring in your clients as well you will have targets and the firm can't always support you in terms of giving you enough work that you can meet your target with just clients that the firm refers to you so so so, so if you got that thing right from the very beginning you kind of start building up a network which helps you and not only does it just does it help you in terms of getting work it also helps you in terms of getting uh, a good opening uh, i mean if you network and you find someone maybe he's in a small firm and you get a something there but if tomorrow he moves on he might take you with him so i mean it's important that you start networking from day one and how would you do that you would uh, start attending some of these conferences these networking conferences uh, once you start interning in a um, uh, firm especially uh, you know try and ask your uh, mentors and 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 lawyers whom you're working under over there because they would be going especially law firm people they go to a lot of conferences uh, uh, more than what uh, practice uh, practitioners uh, uh, in dispute resolution go for and you know try and you know request them if they can take you with them they may not always be uh, able to take you because a lot of these conferences are paid conferences and obviously the firm would not spend on in turn but a lot of conferences are there where they can take you because maybe they sponsored them and they have an extra uh, seat that uh, which they could kind of uh, therefore they could register you on that so there is so that is one way of starting the other is also keep your eyes and ears open a lot of these conferences do have complimentary entries for students uh, for example you have the singapore international arbitration center siac they have a lot of conferences and i believe uh, they give complimentary entries if you're a student uh, so that is one conference that is which is good and where you meet a lot of councils um you have a few moot courts in fact uh, i know a lot of students when they go for moot courts they uh prefer the name of the moot court so it could be maybe a jessup or a williams wills but at least when i was in law school my thinking was different different in the sense that at the end of the day mooting for me was more like a simulation it was where you can overcome your fears you can practice uh maybe my level of comfort in the moot court was okay from day one because i enjoyed public speaking for somebody maybe it, it opens the doors to public speaking but at the end of the day it's actually a simulation and for me the focus on even when i did a moot court was not on actually whether it was a jessup or a or a or a william c wiss but a network uh, a moot court where i where if i could know who the judges were in terms of their panel or what topic it's on where some of these moots actually have 
networking events in the moot court where you get to actually uh, network with judges uh, who are actually lawyers. And, and some of them do have, have that. Like for example, talking about air law, I take part in the Leiden moot. I used to part of the student. I was a coach. I've been a judge for the last few years. And that's one example where students and judges interact and network and eat their meals together on the sidelines of the moot. So that is a, an example. I did a moot court, which is now discontinued by SIAC again, the SARC law moot, where again, it used to happen in a five-star hotels, ran for just three, four years, but you were interacting with judges who were GCs from various companies. So that is again a platform which you got for networking. So that, so I would think something like that is better than doing a moot court where you're only mooting. But at the end of the day, it is simulation and giving you confidence. You know, it's not that you're becoming a mooter as a, as a, for life. I mean, you will of course argue, um, but you're not going to be mooting or judging moot court competition as, 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 as a profession. That is something you would do giving back to society. And, and therefore, if you get a chance to do a moot court where you could interact and network with judges who are lawyers, there is no harm because they would be very happy to keep in touch with you. And then, of course, um, um, you know, if you're traveling, uh, I know it sounds uh, sometimes, you know, question is, how do you look at, again, you're traveling, if, at least with me, if I was traveling, say, anywhere, whether it's overseas or whether it was even in India, uh, you know, if I was traveling, I remember I, if I was traveling to a place like Bombay, uh, or, 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 or especially because Bombay, uh, Delhi, I was anywhere from, but Bombay is where a lot of contacts were. So I was traveling for a wedding with my family, or I remember I traveled once to spend New Year's. I used that opportunity because I knew I was staying with my parents, so I didn't have to, or, you know, I didn't have to worry about figuring a place to stay and things like that. And I used that opportunity to kind of convince my parents that, okay, look, I need half a day where I'm not going to be with you guys. Or if it's a wedding, the wedding's in the evening. I need this first half to myself because that is where I, people whom I found met at conferences and whom I had been in touch over email with. And now you have WhatsApp today as well. My time there was not WhatsApp. WhatsApp makes it even quicker in terms of the response. And I would go and meet them and have a coffee with them. And, and, and that kind of uh, makes the meeting more personal because obviously as a student, you may not want to spend that money to go especially to meet them, which you would end up doing, of course, once you're a lawyer. But that is one way as a student to also kind of make use of the opportunity. You know, you're traveling abroad, London, for instance, and, you know, you've met a couple of contacts who may be based out of London. Take half a day out, go and meet them. It adds value because that kind of reinforces that connect that you have. And when which contact helps, you don't know. Contacts whom I, were kind enough, whom I was kind enough to make in law school uh, as students, not knowing where they would land up today, Many of them have been very helpful to me uh, as a professional. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I know that we have met in Bombay and also uh, in, in Delhi. Fact, that, that's how yeah. you and I, in fact, I met, you know, because yeah. I made that endeavor to, yeah. to connect with people who had written for the journal. Yeah. Uh, and uh, a couple of, uh, and apart from you, there are three, four more people who are actually very good friends of mine who mm. I became friends with only because. Uh, you know, they had written for the article and yeah. we kind of kept in touch. And if yeah. I was in Bombay, I would make that endeavor to keep in touch. Yeah. And of course, that, that does over the course develop into friendship, like for instance, mm. uh, our friendship and similarly with others as well. Yeah. And, and so therefore, it's, I think, very important. Networking is very important. Yeah. So my advice to law students, of course, is that don't wait and learn the hard way when you're a lawyer. Um, the fact is it is hard reality. Networking is very important in the legal profession. You may be a topper, but if you think that topping and not networking is going to get you somewhere, I'm sorry, you're mistaken. <laughs> that is not how it works. Um, it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, now I really tend to agree. What I really liked about your answer was that was very thorough. I, I have no further questions really what you said because you, you said how to do it, what it is and give really useful pointers. So thank you, Vikrant. Now I want to talk to you about LLM, your LLM experience, because we actually ended up meeting in the US as well when you came to Cornell and I was just right. leaving right. Uh, for back uh, to Bombay after my Columbia uh, experience. So I remember right. us, we caught up in New York City as well. I so, think we met at Grand Central, if I'm not Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. We met. So uh, can you tell everyone about your LLM experience? Because one of the biggest misconceptions, the questions I get asked, especially from students, uh, is uh, 
why would you go to the us uh, for an llm like what does it give you and the laws are different and you know it's not like the english law which are our laws are derived from the english law so why us and why did you choose that and what how does the llm help you so can you talk a little bit about that so so first of all uh, i've in fact done two llms the second in aviation law but i won't get to that now because that's something very niche but talk about llms in the us in general uh, see there are two reasons why you would be doing an llm Uh, and this i'm not talking about myself but i'm talking about in general from what my analysis has been having spent my time doing llm uh one is that you know you're looking at joining a law firm in new york and you know working in a international firm now if you're looking at that you know then in that case your uh uh you need to give the new york bar exam but your indian law degree does not allow you to give the new york bar exam and that's and one of the criteria which to give the bar exam is to cure that defect by giving in, by doing an llm so for some people doing an llm is not actually because they want to do an llm it is because they want to come and work in america by and for which they have to give the new york bar and that in turn can only happen if they do an llm so llm is more of a compulsion in order to be eligible to set for the new york bar because the ultimate goal is to land up a firm job a law firm job at a plush uh, law firm Uh, law firms like you know in america in many places are very different from law firms here i mean they are more, less family run but more they work more like investment banks you know all over the world and things like that you know 4000 lawyers and uh, in terms of uh, that you're working on deals and so on so that is one reason so some people will have that in mind when they come for the llm now when they have that in mind the subjects they take will also be mostly subjects which are subjects which are focused in the bar exam because otherwise you only get a couple of months to prepare which is very very little you know that time is actually revision time as what the jd's call it and not when you're learning the law afresh and uh, therefore uh, those students usually pick up american courses they don't really take international courses because their funda is primarily to kind of be familiar so that once they complete the llm they can start uh, working on their uh, preparation for the bar exam and they are at par with the jd's in terms of their prep uh so the chances of clearing the exam are higher because that is the uh, the main goal and many of them of course take loans for that so th- for them getting a job is really important uh from that perspective uh, now that again is um now in that scenario again it's not very easy getting a job because visa restrictions are becoming extreme visa restrictions are increasing day by day i know people who cleared the new york bar where the firm was willing to take them but because of visa restrictions they had no options where to come back so that is also happening sometimes you know you could be everywhere you could have cleared the new york bar the firm is willing to take you but the visa becomes a problem because the h1b1 as i don't know if many of you know is a sponsored visa where you have to be sponsored there are limited seats i think 60000 seats or something a year out of which 30000 is 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 reserved just for it and things like that so you so your firm has to sponsor you now when it comes to sponsoring you that's when uh, the firm you know takes a call and a lot of times the firm prefers sponsoring an international jd student instead because jd a lot of students instead of doing llm prefer doing the jd or uh, i had a batchmate of mine she was from greece and greece went through that turmoil the year she did the llm she gave the jd exam she got into cornell they they treated her llm because she had studied uh, 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 a lot of american courses as one year of first year of jd and she joined straight away in second year jd because she realized that could work because the chances of an international student who's got a jd getting a job are are are, are much more and the reason being because obviously they have still studied three years more of uh, of the american courses rather than one year so while of course the same person may one year person have done lm they have passed the bar but again in terms of um, you know knowing the law they are, they are definitely um, quicker uh, they obviously know much more having spent three years and so therefore and also what happens is when you're looking at applying for jobs now the firms when they come to campus the llm students are not eligible to sit there's a separate uh, fair that happens for llm students where you can try your luck uh, where it's easier getting jobs except for indians the reason being that most of these international firms american firms end up giving the llm students jobs in their in their respective cities but because they're there like for example a clifford chance would probably give a chinese student a job but at shanghai but now the thing is that because foreign law firms are present in 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 shanghai the way of working in shanghai for clifford chance would be similar to new york the salary structure would probably be a similar kind of a thing so the student so the lm student won't mind going back and working there 
and even if he's on a loan, he or she he can she can recover that loan very easily. The same for somebody who's say a, a French person. With Indians, that problem again arises is that because foreign law firms are not there in India, for them getting a job gets very difficult because there are no Indian offices. And and also uh, language course, language requirements. Correct language. I don't know whether you had the this. Uh, uh, situation when you sat for the job fair, but there were some two hundred no, jobs. See, I, I didn't. Uh, you didn't see. Okay, fair. there were some two hundred jobs posted, uh, two hundred plus jobs posted on the website, and uh, only four jobs we were eligible to sit because most of them right. had you had to know Mandarin or Arabic or French or Spanish right. or Portuguese. And right. ho gaya. We everybody, all of us are out of the race. Forget right. all of the other things that you said was also very very valid. Uh, that. Law, uh, foreign law firms are not available present here. Some of them have these best friend agreements and all with some of the yeah, bigger law firms. You know, but they, they, but then you know, then you are kind of you need to apply independently here. You know, it's not exactly. the same thing. You, it's you're not, still working. Yeah. And 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 also the thing is that the uh, the uh, the uh, when you're doing the three year JD program, if these firms come for internships, you get selected in the first, then you do something called a summer in, summer associate internship. And and they usually do it and, and 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 for a couple of years and then they usually get the PPO in law school as well. Uh, sorry, you were saying something. I think I interrupted you. No, no, I was agreeing with you. Yeah. Go on. So, so so therefore, yeah. So that is so this would be one category of where you're doing the LLM to basically cure a defect to do the job. Although if you're very focused, my advice would be you know think of it maybe try and do the um, the uh, LJD itself. Which is of course a three-year course, but if you're hundred percent, I agree. Sure I agree. There, then your and chances are higher. Much higher, and I think you do get credits for the courses. Not only that you've you've also you also get credit for some courses that you've done in in your uh, local law degree or your basic right. law degree. You may not right. need to do all of them uh, for yeah. your uh, first year. So therefore, that is one category. The second category is you know where you're looking at looking to to do, do the LLM like just getting the brand name. And eventually, you want to come back. Uh, of course, um, that is a, that is what the category I would put myself in, where I was looking for a brand name, and getting the exposure of just working, of just seeing what it is being abroad in terms of uh, studying and interacting with the working professionals uh, who are based abroad. So that was my idea, and and then coming back and you know using that brand name. Of course, trust. If you feel that using a brand name is going to give you a job, it's not always going to help you. Especially if you're in litigation and not corporate. In corporate, to some extent, it might still help if you've done some hardcore courses on uh, specific issues, like maybe a project finance or an M and A, and that's the practice area you're looking to join here. But in litigation, definitely, it's not going to help. But yeah, if you're looking at the brand name and the exposure, and you don't mind spending that time and money, then yes, it's worth it. Uh, so, so these are these are the two categories I would put in terms of uh, how people take a call um, of uh, whether they want to do an LLM in the US or not. Again, you gave me a very comprehensive answer, so thank you very thank much. You. Now, you mentioned the second LLM. What is the second LLM? When did you get it, and how on earth do you have the time with your so, workload uh, in the Supreme Court? To do this. So my second LLM was an LLM in aviation law. Uh, I went to Leiden, so I was very keen on doing an aviation law LLM. And Leiden University and Magilla are the only two universities that offer you that. So in the beginning, I thought of applying to Leiden because I had been associated with them, and you know, unofficially, uh, you know, I knew if I would apply, my chances of getting in were quite high. But when I took advice from people, they said, you know, if you're choosing between Cornell and Leiden, then you know, you go for Cornell. Because it's obviously generally more general, and especially since I was not sure what the scope of aviation in India was at least back then. So I did Cornell. Now while I was in Cornell, you know, of course I was still in touch with people from Leiden, and they told me, you know, that we have something called uh, 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 the same LLM program we offer to working professionals. If you've got a five-year experience in the aviation sector, you can do that same LLM over a two-year period. You have to go there for some mandate for your minimum attendance and for some of your exams. But a lot of it because it's online. You can do online in terms of your lectures get recorded and sent to you. Your projects and you can do sitting here. But of course, you have to go there as well. So I, I would you have to make three four trips a year, uh, each time for 15, 20 days, over two years. So you're part of two classes, but it is the same regular LLM. So they said, you know, we are willing to, you know, uh, if you're willing to do that. So I said, you know, I can't do the full LLM when I finish Cornell. I want to start work. They said we'll offer you this. 
and they were kind enough to you know allow, uh, offer me a wave of my five year work experience that you need for a hardcore aviation professional i did not have to pay for my uh, food and lodging every time i would come over those visits uh, to light in uh, so that kind of really kind of helped me out and i felt i could you know uh, uh, fund and then i didn't have to pay the full fee for the first year as well so that kind of made it very easy for me that i could take care of it on my own and the university was kind enough to offer me an interest free uh, loan which i had to repay at my convenience in two years so they were very kind so i said you know if they've gone out of their way then you know i definitely need to do the program so that's how i ended up doing it while i was working here i would go back and forth and luckily in litigation you have the luxury of the court applications so that is what i used uh, the court break to kind of uh, work on my papers and things like that so yeah that is the llm uh, i did in aviation law from the library university so now tell us what is aviation law because uh, most of so us don't aviation- know it So aviation law uh, is again very multifaceted. You have a branch called aviation financing law, which is basically financing of aircraft. So tomorrow, you know, you want to lease a plane, you want to buy a plane, you want, may want to buy a plane and then sell it and lease it back. Uh, so these are various modes. Then how do you finance the aircraft? Uh, you know, sometimes you are buying the aircraft minus engine. So that's kind of covered under a broad thing of uh, aircraft finance. So that is that is one aspect of. aviation law one is of course the private international law which uh, aviation law which is basically uh, uh disputes of a, say a something like a passenger vis-a-vis an airline say it could your instances like denied boarding could be covered in that or covid and you know people were fighting for refund of tickets that so those kind of things come under the private international air law concept public international air law is you know maybe if you're joining the ico which is the un body for uh, civil aviation um based in montreal as well as seven other regional offices that they have and you're working on maybe drafting a treaty or something like that um or you know you're working with maybe the uh ministry the aviation ministry of a particular country or you may be working with the airport operator of the country and you're kind of working on policies like issues getting legislations into place maybe getting your dom- your um country to get a domestic legislation to enforce a treaty that you have signed so therefore uh, that is public in, that is there then of course competition law in aviation is again another aspect because you have a lot of times have airline mergers that happen uh, where you have two airlines merging in india we had jet sahara uh, we had i remember kingfisher and jet also getting into some sort of agreement which kind of had to face the anti competitive uh, watchdogs master so you keep having all these i believe uh, i believe tatas after buying air india they are facing the competition watchdog in singapore and competition laws pretty much are similar again the basic principles are similar world over so uh, competition law in aviation is one aspect again airlines do a lot of these frequent flyer alliances code share agreements so whether they have an anti competitive effect or not so competition in anti um, antitrust law competition law and aviation is again another uh, asset so these are broadly some of the uh, areas that we have uh, in terms of uh, aviation law and what is it that you practice in like what is your so I, so so in aviation my practice is more on the private international air law side uh primarily there yeah private international air law so you help uh, and and in uh, mostly on the dispute resolution side yeah no a uh, dispute resolution primarily yes because and policy and you, advice because and you like because you know when consumers have avia have issues they want it resolved you know they will come to you we want a ticket refund or the airline may be coming to you that some passengers sued us but we are challenging it in court or you help us settle it things like that it could be a denied boarding it could be a compensation um covid saw a lot of increase in competition and we did a lot yeah. of work on that front yeah um so so yeah and uh, now you know you you spoke so much about your experience in uh, dispute resolution and one of the things that i really want to do through this platform is to just bring to the fore simple simple mistakes that people make and with just like the right knowledge you you can save yourself a lot of heartache and also a lot of money so so, so i think one important thing especially if you're a first generation lawyer i think that's what i would like to model my advice on because the others don't the the non first generation lawyers don't need it they already know what path they have to follow it is look at the experience you're getting and not the name and i'll tell you why what i took a decade to learn 
my associates have learned it in two years. Now, what do I mean when I say that? You know, when I work, I went like the regulars looking for people to work with. You were also looking at a brand name. Of course, working with the brand name, you get immense knowledge. And that is an area which you definitely should get to work with a senior counsel or somebody, especially if you want to go independent practice. But if you think, you know, you'll work with an independent, with a senior counsel for five years and then start independent, it's not very easy mm. because you don't have a shop waiting for you. Mm. You know, you don't know, you know, you will have to probably, you may not have a clerk from day one. Have you, with a senior counsel, you may never have seen how filing is done. Mm. You probably, mean, uh, his briefs come through law firms. You don't know how your files are managed in court. You have never really gone scouting for clients. So you don't know how work comes. Yeah. Now, where is, you know, and that's something I took a long time to learn. But that's something, at least in my office, we, we kind of let our uh, um, colleagues get learn that from day one. So my juniors, uh, rather I would not use the term juniors, I would say my associate advocates, I would say, because they are much more than juniors. They get a chance to argue in court. So that way they kind of get over their fears and they know if they want to get into a solicitor kind of a work or they want to get into a barrister kind of a practice. So we give them the chance to argue. Of course, I wouldn't say they start off from Supreme Court from day one. They start off observing matters, start off with smaller matters and smaller courts. But yes, my juniors, or again, it's a wrong word I use, my associate advocates um, today do argue in Supreme Court as well. Uh, one of them got a chance to appear in the NCLT. I was on a flight that a matter suddenly came. Uh, it, uh, the date got preponed. It was given on a date. It happened to be a Sunday and it got preponed to another date when I will happen to be on a flight and we don't know about one day before. My associate advocate requested for a Passover and I told him because stakes were high, but I had trained him well that he could appear if the judge didn't allow. The judge said, sorry, make use of this chance. Your senior is not here. He argued. We won the matter. In fact, we got to know about the order was reserved. We got to know about it through live law. Oh. So, uh, so eventually, over two years, uh, my associate advocates have got a chance where they've appeared right from the lower courts to Supreme Court. And uh, so they've kind of overcome that fear. They accompany me on, uh, they accompany me on uh, client visits. Uh, and uh, uh, they um, um, see how, and cl by client visits, I mean not just matters where we are briefing counts uh, where we are discussing an ongoing matter with the client, but even where we are doing a business development meeting with the client. So we try and take them where we can. And uh, we take them for briefings with senior counsels. They, they spend days, they, they do filing as well at times. So they know if there's no clerk, how is filing done? They even put the files in the record room in the racks. So much so, if required, they are trained to manage the telephone at the reception and clear the litter from the pantry and put it at the, outside the office where the litter is kept of the building. So do, they've learned everything. So they know tomorrow, from tomorrow, if somebody leaves my chamber, he knows, okay, if I want to do independent practice, I have seen how it's done. I know I'm confident of arguing. Yes, my research skills are fine, but I know I have to invest in something like an SEC. Am I willing to do that? I know this is the minimum infrastructure I require. Can I do that? Can I make sure I have a ready-made big scanner today to scan to meet a client's demand of sending him something overnight? Because today clients with, with, with technology evolving, uh, you can't tell them, okay, tomorrow I will go to court and give it to the scanning guy and he will get it by the evening. So you look, okay, I know I need a machine. I know this much computers. Today it's all virtual. I know I need this many screens. I might even require a small TV screen in my room. So I know in terms of infrastructure, this is what I need to spend in. I know, okay, I may be able to afford only one person. Do I need to go for a high-end clerk or for a guy who's 80% a clerk, but 20% can help me in support staff in the office. He can manage my reception and he can clean up my pantry. And tomorrow he's on leave. I know I have to do it myself. Can I do it? So there he knows exactly tomorrow, you know, can he do that or not? And if he says, you know, yes, I'm confident, but you know, it's not very easy with these other things. Let me join a firm for some time. Maybe that's a better option for me. Or uh, let me join a counsel's chamber. So he kind of gets that idea in a good two years to make that choice. That if yeah. he wants to do independent counsel practice, it is not just about that, but he has to, he knows the question will come, where do I get my work from? What are the expenses I require? Do I have the money for that? Do I have the infrastructure in place, minimum that I require? 
what is it? so you know things like that you know if today, uh, how much support staff can i afford how much do i need vis-a-vis how much can i afford if today if i can afford one person to more that person on leave am i equipped to manage yeah. on my own that's very important because that is what i i've seen people uh, including myself uh, maybe my time you know we were we never had a batch that had passed out we didn't have people to guide us but uh, again this person came to me for covid during covid my juniors a lot of them came to me during covid and uh, you know because they were looking at something or the other but they stuck hung on because they felt you know that they they that these other question marks they would get to answer only after spending two years in a chamber like mine which is a first generation chamber as compared to a uh, established chamber okay lovely wait am i on mute yeah no you've uh, again given me <laughs> you any question i ask you you give me like really long and nice answers but uh, now i want to ask you a similar question but from a uh, everyday lay person point of view the sense that uh you have because you are in dispute resolution you've been dealing with a lot of let's call them consumers or everyday people with problems uh my experience so far in life has been that uh because people don't know their basic risks you know they don't know their, their basic rights what they have you know what are and they don't know um they don't know what what things mean like when you sign a contract what does it mean versus when you sign an mou and stuff like that just basic stuff they are not able to plan their risks they're not able to take better decisions so in and i have seen this across every practice area you know not just mine but so what are some of the things that you feel that everyday people make like simple mistakes that they make uh, that with just a, a little better knowledge or a little change in thinking uh, they can just make much better decisions so i think uh, first of all uh it's very important to be thorough with your contracts that you signed because a lot of times disputes happen because you don't know what you've signed and then in that case you kind of you know tend to uh overlook that and then which is why you're in a soup for instance if you if you sign an agreement which has an arbitration clause and it says you know it will it it will have say an arbitration clause and it will say okay if you want to terminate the contract you have to follow certain protocols you know maybe you raise a objection when you're playing the bill that you know these are that the goods are not in conformity or something like that and a lot of times you know they don't know they don't they don't take those contracts very seriously and they end up signing them and when they come you know all those stages have been foregone and it's very difficult because at the end of the day the court goes by the contract yeah or for that matter somebody signed us shareholders agreement with the blindly uh, without realizing that you know whether he had a first right of refusal whether he did not they just sign it uh uh Uh, as if they are terms and conditions. Of course, they are terms and conditions, but they are not like you know terms and conditions where you are just giving your car at the valet and yeah. taking a valet ticket and keeping that without seeing the terms at the back, or buying an air ticket from an airline but not reading the terms and conditions which you have agreed to. So that's something very important. It's very important for them to be thorough with the knowledge. I would say it is important you invest in a legal counsel. Uh, I had a client once where you know the legal counsel is uh, was was I mean he was someone. who had no idea what used to be happening was of no assistance to me and when i spoke to his chairman he said you know uh, i said the previously uh, counsel you had was much better she was more hands on he says you know we, our budget's gone down and we can't afford somebody like her so i said see it's very simple you know either you i said you see you can't afford it then you're going to in the long run suffer because this guy's not going to follow up contracts and eventually you're going to be paying that same amount in litigation in court so uh, you know so therefore it's very important to make sure you invest that money try and uh, cut that spending on maybe somebody else in the company or if you can't or put somebody on a retainership basis in your company but it's important to spend on a good counsel who can apprise you of your rights and liabilities and who acts like a regulatory officer in the company who can you know make sure all the compliances who works like a compliance officer it's very important for a lawyer to to have a good lawyer who can don the role of something called a compliance officer to make sure your compliances are in checks and balances i've had a situation where the guy doesn't even know his returns are paid and his company is also been struck off the records the matter came to nclt he had no idea and then he then he found out the returns are never paid out oh man so it's very it's very important to be hands on and not let go and invest in the legal space you know you need to invest in a good in house counsel who can be your chief compliance officer 
you know, everyone I've asked this question without exception, 100% of the people who have come on the podcast have said this one thing as the biggest mistake that everyday people make. And it's not us as lawyers tooting our horn or trying to get more work. It's just that it pains you when you see, uh, when you get clients and they are like the example that you gave, this guy's company has been struck off record. Like this is something you've worked your entire life for. And then it's just gone because you, you in a way were pennywise pound foolish, right? You don't realize the risk that is associated with non-compliance. You don't realize the risk that is associated with a bad decision. Correct. And everything that you work for can just disappear like that. Ultimately, we all live within the bounds of the law. So, um, yeah, I, I, I keep, I, I'm always surprised at how this seems to be the number one thing that all of all the people who appear on the podcast say, and uh, I hope people, uh, take more, uh, they take it more seriously than what they're taking yeah. today. Uh, okay. Yeah. Just to, uh, wrap up this one last se- this segment before we go on to our last segment, uh, what do you think? are the gaps in today's legal system and for someone like us who are already in the system and also for young lawyers and law students who are coming in what do you think we can practically do to help because we all know that our system is overburdened to the point of almost exhaustion you know breakage so uh, what do you think we can all do well obviously that's a that's a good question and a difficult question to answer because having a solution is, is is not very um, easy for this because, uh, for instance if you take first generation lawyers coming into litigation a lot of counsels want to litigate a lot of them uh, who work in corporate firms have uh, you know uh, like to litigate but they say we don't have the luxury to get into that because uh, you know either we don't belong to a metro city or we have to you know uh, bank on ourselves and we don't have support from the house so for something like that of course yes I believe bar councils including the Bar Council of India and State Bar Council are coming up with a, with a fund to support uh, uh, lawyers. And I think it's important that senior councils also, uh, you know, have a benchmark because see, what happens is that senior councils, many of them, I won't take names, but sometimes some of them uh, may not be very generous when it comes to remunerating them because uh, the old school thought is, is saying is that, you know, you're here to learn, not to earn. You're still a student. But the point is that, you know, the thing is, if you're on a council's chamber, uh, today, a lot of times, you know, you will be like, okay, but I can never, see, if you're in a law firm, you can still make it like a retirement home. But if you're in a council's chamber, none of these chambers really have that thing of being lucrative in terms of staying there your whole life. I mean, you know, you have to move on, whether it is joining a firm or getting into independent practice. And, And I think that is partially because also the whole concept of where you have even though we don't officially have the solicitor barrister system, but uh, in most in most metro cities, uh, you know you have the concept of solicitor, the law briefing the council. So then obviously you know um, a lot of councils don't take the chamber work very seriously because they know it's all coming from there. But uh, some states, the non-metro cities, of course, like I'll give you an instance. I practice in both Delhi and Chandigarh. Now in Chandigarh, there is no concept per se of a law firm. <laughs> if you want to engage a senior counsel for a matter, you will go to him, he will do the full matter. Of course, he will get his colleague, his junior to draft the matter for, for him. If the client wants him to settle, he would settle it, otherwise the junior would draft it and file it in his name. And he would then, of course, appear. So it's a one-stop shop where the junior also gets a good, uh, gets good exposure and maybe in a system, in a system like this, he could probably stick on for longer. Because he's an, an important, he's, an, he's the important eyes and ears for a senior. And then in something like that, the senior also, once if he gets senior and he sticks on, the senior doesn't mind him sticking on because he's been drafting for him for a while. The senior knows, okay, I don't, if I'm vetting the draft, I don't have to have too many corrections and I'm happy to give him a fee for that. So then you also come on to a fee sharing with your juniors. Now, the difficulty in a place like Delhi, what I have seen is that in Delhi, that model is not very feasible because in Delhi, if you go to a senior counsel also, he will tell you to go to a law firm, get them to draft it and then come back to him. So then in that case, so now in a situation like that, obviously a senior's chamber, the juniors are not really drafting the work because the senior has said, you go to a law firm and come. 
So then your brand, your value in the firm obviously is less. Some of the seniors still rely a lot on their juniors in terms of the research and making the notes. But that extra advantage of you know drafting and maybe working with your senior on a fee sharing basis, that thing is lesser. I feel in in Delhi chambers from a, from my personal experience because I've briefed a lot of counsellors. It's maybe lesser because they don't take up the matters directly. Uh, not that they do in Delhi in Chandigarh as well, but there they give it to their juniors. So juniors, so then it indirectly comes through their own people. So, 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 so I think it's very important also having a model in your office where you can remunerate someone that tomorrow somebody joins the chamber and he wants to stay on, he can do that. But that's a model I have adopted in my office. In our office, we take up arguing, drafting, everything, filing, and a lot of matters which I feel I don't, I, I can't put in 100% best my effort, or I would only be able to, you know, maybe spend limited time. I put my juniors on a 50% fee sharing basis on that matter. So I'll tell my juniors, okay, again, juniors is a bad word. I'll tell my associate advocate, okay, this matter is, you're, do, you're doing this with me, but this is a fee sharing matter. So he gets incentivized to work harder. I, where I will tell him, I will only argue the matter. You're going to be drafting it. You're going to be doing everything. At best, I will vet it for you and give you the pointers. It's your baby. You are handling it. So he knows he's on a fee sharing basis. He's also incentivized to kind of perform better. And at the same time, uh, you know, he gets an added source of revenue in addition to what you would anyway pay him. The stipend, as you call it, that you would be paying him every month. Good points. New points, actually. Something I have not thought of. Especially the fee sharing part. And I don't think we do that much in Bombay. I'm not sure. Uh, I haven't heard of it. In fact, in, fact we, in my office, we have three categories. How we divide their remuneration is in three parts. So whatever the we don't we whatever their retainership per month with the stipend we pay them is also not fixed. Some portion is fixed, some is variable, and the reason why it is variable is because we keep it based on the the inflow that we get. And another reason for keeping it variable is that the council should get used to mentally be prepared that I will never have a fixed income my whole life if I'm going to do litigation. So therefore, while maybe on an average with sir I make X amount of money. But what I am guaranteed is only X minus 5. The remaining could be plus 1, 2, 3, 4. It could vary. Yeah. And then the third component is we try putting them every month on some matter on a fee sharing basis, whatever. It could be a good matter, depending, of course, on the client. It could be a premium client where you are charging your regular fee, where, of course, 50% he makes a good fee kind of a thing. Or it could be a smaller matter as well, where he still makes something and he's incentivized to do it. So, yeah. Nice. I've never heard of this, but it sounds it sounds like a good system to have, and it's clearly working for you and your juniors because they want to stick on. So it's good. Uh, we've sort of wrapped up. I want to go to the last part of our recording, which is just uh, like a fun part uh, where we want we get to know you much better, not just me, like everybody who is listening. So it's called five, four, three, two, one. I ask you five of something, four of something, three of something, like that. So uh, starting with the first, because you are honestly the one of the few people I know who do so many things in one lifetime. So give me five productivity tips. How do you manage to do it all? Like five things, even you can oh, num- tell me about apps or stuff like that, which also help you. So number one, I keep a calendar. Hmm. It is very important to maintain your thing on a calendar. And I work, it sounds insane, but I work on a slot time slot system. So everything I do on a particular day, including when I'm going to have my meals, is all fixed in a calendar. And I have to tend to stick to that slot in order to finish off something. You can't be just being here and being there. So if I'm spending time with family, it will be started on the calendar that this much is my family time. If I am doing court, okay, it's on my calendar. This time to this time is court. In between, if I know I have time, I will slot something maybe in between something like a call with somebody or things like that. So I kind of put things on a slot system where I kind of tend to make things happen. Now, I tend to work out in the morning and go to the gym. So if I'm gyming, instead of hearing music, I would probably hear NDTV news, which, which works live on their app. Or this so podcast. Way, or, or this podcast. So, <laughs> yeah. so therefore, so, yeah. you know, if, or if I want to listen to some interview of mm. someone. I, like, I love listening to uh, interviews, podcasts like these of senior advocates and judges and people whom I could take a, 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 a lesson from. So I like to listen on, uh, to this when I'm in the, on my treadmill, for instance. That saves time rather than coming back 
and then you know okay this is my news time to watch the news you know if i'm in the car i'll probably be reading the newspaper while i'm in the car rather than spending half an hour at home reading because in the car you are you have limited yeah. things you can do yeah. the newspaper would probably be in my hand when i'm in court so if i'm waiting outside for a matter and i have 5 minutes i could glance through it so i'm telling you an example of how i can i would probably have calls with clients if i have for that day slotted calls i would have those slotted and today with uh, video conferencing as well uh, with uh, i even do some of my conferences in the car if i don't require papers and you know i can do where i know uh, i can just do it while ch- uh, where i just need to be on the call so i try and use these kind of things to kind of save time i pretty much like i said i put things on a calendar and that kind of helps me organize my day and uh, i try and do as much as i can especially when i'm on the move all the unproductive so called things um and 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 yeah so i kind of uh, slot my calendar up pretty much to achieve as much as i can i think that's very important to do yeah i think planning out your work is just one part but working out your plan is for me the more difficult part like uh, so i try and put realistic plans you know if i know i can't achieve something i would not put it on my calendar for that day or i would put it on a slot over two days and then okay. like you're saying you know uh, put it, implementing it you know if i'm with me the thing is even if i'm traveling you know um, again for me uh, if i'm on a flight and uh, of course if i don't have anything slotted for that day or i'm going well as per my schedule i would probably be watching a movie like but yes i would not shy away if something has to be done i would be very happy to um, to kind of um, uh, open up your laptop and do some work and do on the flight or for that matter i was uh, traveling i remember i uh, i went with, i went to uh, chandigarh for a matter once and i drove down because uh, the morning flight there's only one morning flight currently post covid at 5:30 after the next flight is at 1:30 and 5:30 means you have to leave wake up at 2:00 o'clock yeah so that didn't seem practical the shatabdi is very comfortable but that leaves only at 7:40 and reaches at 11 and in chandigarh the court sits at 10 so i drove down because it is even if i leave at 4 o'clock uh, at 5 o'clock at 5 it means i can get up at 4:30 get ready and leave by 5 i reach by 9 in those 4 hours again i can sleep in the car now of course i in the morning i know at that time i probably would anyway not be doing anything in that early hour so working going by car worked perfect for me now after the matter the client had already flown down the previous night because she didn't want to take the 5:30 flight either and in the evening we finished the hearing we realized we had to kind of work on a work together on a on a hearing and uh, work on a work together sit together and probably work on an application which had to be finalized by that evening so that the next day it could be filed now i technically already was supposed to drive back after court at 5 and reach at 9 which means i would have had to you know do it late night which would affect my productivity for the next day so i left my car there straight away arrangements were made by the office i flew with the client to chandigarh we reached the airport sat in the airline lounge we drafted it sitting in the lounge because you have to go to work early and we had that luxury because none of us had luggage sat finalized it on the lounge did our conference on the flight together lovely when i reached delhi so of course it was that proposition of leaving my car behind and yeah. trying but that what uh, allowed me so by 9 o'clock when i reached when i reached delhi that extra point of doing my conference doing my drafting everything was already done and your car also reached delhi eventually no my car of course the driver brought it separately yeah so so yeah. but when i reached delhi my point was i was already on par at par with my schedule yeah Amazing. and i didn't have to go haywire so that so yeah. that's an example of yeah. how you need to kind of you know plan yourself yeah. to get yeah. it done yeah yeah so you're giving me good ideas about working out my plan because i think that's where i struggle the most especially after i had kids i struggle the most okay four books that don't you don't ask me <laughs> <laughs> yeah four books that you'd recommend uh, to anyone to read need not be law books but so i have a mixture of both one is a law related book it's a book which uh, mr diljit titus the managing partner of titus and company recommended and i immediately bought it uh, i bought, you have to it's it's published by the american bar association on how to build a law practice okay. very interesting book for a first generation lawyer and you can buy it online that's one read i would say 
One another read is a book I can't remember the publisher again recommended to me by Mr. Titus. What mm. clients love. It's called What Clients Love. It's a book with a green cover page. Uh, I haven't been going to office because the code breaks, so I don't know the publishing publisher name. But What Clients Love is there, and maybe you can get in touch with me if you need the publisher's name. I could then check it out yeah, and send it to you. That's sure. again a very good book of yeah. what a client looks at. So these are books which are not. I mean, they are not law law related, and yet they are. Uh, Books yeah, very relevant. Of, uh, yeah, relevant. So that is there, and then I really like this book called the Ambani Sons, which is a book written on the Ambani brothers and uh, Dhirubhai Ambani, and uh, that was a very good book. And I learned a very valid lesson when I was reading that book, uh, which was where Anil Ambani once, uh, you know, his father told him, you know, son, you're hundred and five kgs or something like that. You know, I have money to buy you everything in the world, and I cannot, but. but there's one thing I can't buy you, and that's health. And uh, that is when Anil Ambani actually overnight became a fitness freak. That yeah. you read about him, yeah. and uh, so similarly, that book has a lot of these motivating lessons. The Ambani Sons. So that is a, 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 another book I would I would recommend. So on the back of my mind, I have three books right now actually <sighs> that I would recommend. Yeah, so say it. It's fine, even if it's over yeah. four. Yeah, three, three, three books. The, these three books are what I would recommend. Only. Okay. Yeah. These. Okay, yeah. And now three. Because to be very honest with you, after getting into the legal profession, you know, if I get some time off, I need to be away from this reading. And yeah. I've I've started reading much lesser than I would when I was in law school or before that. So therefore, I would uh, probably not want to recommend a, a, a fourth book as of now. Yeah. Okay. What now? Three. You've spoke. You've actually given. Yes, a lot. Sorry, I do have a fourth book, and the fourth <laughs> book is something I think. Uh, which everybody would recommend is Before Memory Fades by Falina Raman. I think that's a book everybody, every lawyer would recommend. You know, you are the first person to recommend that book on the podcast. You're actually, I think, uh, my eighth or ninth guest so far. Uh, I already have my notes made in that book, in fact. That's how oh, I usually I use that book. Oh, wow. Okay. You are the first person to, the most recommended book on the podcast is To Kill a Mockingbird. Okay. And that's like, Almost every other person has recommended it. And another very interesting book which I read recently is The Seven Legal Eagles, uh, written by this journalist from Economic Times, Indu Bhan, hmm. um, whom yeah. I know because of practicing in the Supreme Court as well. Yeah. So I, Indu's written a good book on um, the legal eagles, which uh, comprises of yeah. seven lawyers. I think I saw uh, it in Kitab Khana. So that's also that very, uh, because some of the stories by the councils are quite uh, interesting uh, is it interesting and uh, and uh, mesmerizing oh wow yeah. okay yeah. okay you've yeah. said a lot of things uh, you've actually given a lot of practical tips but i still have to ask you three tips for young lawyers or law students like three i, I think always believe in yourself do what your heart tells you to do and work hard results will follow i don't know when but at some point of time i feel they will follow and the third one and the third is what a saying by Dr. APJ Kalam, which I've always believed in. Dreams are those that never let you sleep. They should keep you awake. So if you have a dream, don't sleep over it. Start working to implementing it. Mm. Only then will that become a reality. Yeah. It's like speaking directly to me. Like I was telling you before we started this, I finally had the courage to do this after COVID. Uh, India Law Journal is an example of that. I'll be yeah, of course. If I, yeah. If I for myself. Yeah. Lovely. I had two life lessons that you have learned. Um, uh, one, of course, you need to uh, um, uh, understand that, you know, there will be ups and downs. So while you could be having ups, downs could also come at any point of time. So you need to make sure you're level-headed. Uh, if you're having good billings one month, make sure again you're level-headed because while one month you may have had a good month, the next month you may also be earning nil. So it's very important to kind of be level-headed. Um, that's a very important tip that uh, uh, one has to keep in mind, especially if you're in litigation because you're like a daily wage earner. And the second would be um, that it's believe in yourself. Yeah. Only uh, you need to believe in yourself that you can do it. If you don't believe in yourself and you lose faith, you know, then it will be very difficult for you. Yeah. And and do not do not worry about what others say or what it's going to mean to others. You are in something for yourself. Think what how you would react, 
how it would affect you, not how it would affect the others. I think that's what somebody yeah. can imagine. Yeah, I, I, like I said, you're speaking directly to me. You know, I okay. feel like you're, I mean, like, I feel like these are things that I need to hear, which is I think the greatest gift of uh, doing this podcast. I feel like I'm having these conversations and suddenly something that today that you have said or other, other conversations the guests have said is like something I needed to hear. And finally, the best advice that you've ever received. Um, well, it's very hard to think the best advice. I've received a lot of good yeah. advice from a lot of good people, including uh, my family. But um, I think uh, the best advice I have received is the saying of the, Dr. ABJ Abdul Kalam, that do not let dreams just go away. Do not dream them, live them, and be awake to implement them. Okay, this is like the tagline of this episode because uh, it's very true. I'm so thankful to you, Vikrant, for giving thank your time you, so thank generously. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and on I a Monday morning, to that too. In, thank you. Yes. And I look forward to seeing you in Delhi or Bombay sometimes. Yes, for sure. We'll, whoever All comes first, please call the other. Absolutely. Likewise. Yeah. likewise okay. Definitely. Thank you. Thanks, yeah. Jana, See you. Thanks, Bye. Thanks, thanks. Bye.